Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and this is the podcast I host with my friend and professional colleague, Marilyn Berg, Captivated Audience. This is an Efficient Frontiers International Limited podcast. If you've listened to the other EFI podcast series, you've probably heard Mark Gilmartin talk about tax. What I didn't mention to you before is why Mark is so knowledgeable in the area of tax, tax evasion, and tax KYC requirements. Or here's a few facts you may not have known about Mark. Uh, Mark has chaired the industry working group that helped the HMRC to write the first UK FATCA guidance. And he's had a very proactive role at the EU level as well as with the OECD. He's considered by some regulatory staff to be the go-to person when implementing tax compliance rules. And so this is why Mark is the perfect tutor for me on tax KYC and tax evasion. And this time around, we're going to take a look at some cases that focus on the investment sector. So Mark, for AML KYC purposes, it's always thought that if your customer or the customer you're dealing with as an individual, half the battle is won when it comes to establishing who's actually the owner and controller. But it's a much more involved process when we're dealing with legal entities, such as companies, partnerships, investment vehicles, and so forth. And this often proves to be quite a task given the complexity of some ownership arrangements. So what are the main challenges, Mark? in terms of tax KYC perspective? Well, I mean, for some of our audience, the, the, the real challenge arises from the different types of clients that they would have, and indeed the range of client types. It's not all the same. For example, high net worth individuals will have complex tax affairs and may have multiple residencies. Then you're dealing with family offices, you're dealing with the trust structures involved in these, and the corporates. It's not one size fits all. Each type brings its own issues, whether it's simply determining the correct tax residence or indeed the classification of those entities, particularly when it comes to FATCA. Okay, so let's build this out a bit with a practical example in terms of tax KYC. Sure. One of the big differences is in relation to collecting the tax residency information about the beneficial owners of these certain legal entities. For example, an active NFE is a classification of corporates which essentially pursue a trading activity such as manufacturing or selling goods and services. The reporting for these active NFEs, as we'll call them, relates to the tax residence information of the company and not to its ultimate beneficial owners. Whereas when we talk about a passive NFE, these are corporates which pursue effectively investment opportunities so they'll be investing in other corporates or in assets. And their returns are normally in the form of dividends, interest, capital gains, but they're not usually involved in the underlying businesses. This is termed as passive income. Passive NFE is a corporation that receives more than 50% of its income in this way. Now, for passive NFEs, you need to collect not only the tax residency information about the corporation, but also its beneficial owners and its controlling persons. Okay, so I mentioned at the start, we were going to look at some investment sector cases and see how they illustrate how tax KYC fits into the overall control environment for preventing tax evasion. You need to really go back to the pre-FATCA days. And a good place to start might be the Gibraltar Global Securities case. So maybe, Sam, you could give us an outline refresher on that, because that was very much within the AML space at that time. 
Yeah, it, it's an interesting case. It's called the Gibraltar case, but in actual fact, the company itself is based in the Bahamas. They had set up a website where they advertised a broad range of brokerage services, and typically those were provided to broker dealers in the U.S., and they also advertised they could form international business corporations, or IBCs, with nominee officers and directors. They claimed uh, they offered these offshore services at commissions, which were comparable to the mainland, by which they meant mainly the U.S., because those were the jurisdiction of clients they were looking to attract. Now, they promoted these services not only in the U.S., but at other parts of North America. And they said that these were a means to allow their clients to trade anonymously without paying taxes on the profits. And they also offered an extra layer of confidentiality to protect assets from government seizures or frivolous divorce settlements. So Gibraltar ended up attracting U.S. customers who sought to sell shares of low-priced, thinly-traded micro-cap issuers. They made arrangements to hide the fact that these shares were owned by U.S. clients and would then access accounts they held with U.S.-based broker-dealers to place sell orders for those shares. So over a four-year period, they sold approximately $100 million of these securities on behalf of the U.S. clients. Mark, can you tell us a bit about some of the tactics they used to hide from the U.S.-based broker-dealers and others that they were actually acting for the benefit or on behalf of those U.S. clients? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, the transactions that they were running at this time mainly fell into two types. The first that you mentioned were the micro-cap issuers. Gibraltar would arrange for the shares to be deposited with them, having arranged for the transfer agent to essentially redocument or retitle the share certificates in Gibraltar's name. The shares would then be deposited into various security accounts that Gibraltar maintained at these broker-dealers in the US. Now, based on the instructions given to Gibraltar from the client, they would then instruct brokers to sell the shares so it appeared as if the transactions themselves were being done for the benefit of either Gibraltar or one of its IBCs, essentially. They would then instruct the brokers to transfer the sale proceeds to its bank account with the Royal Bank of Canada in the Bahamas. So to all intents and purposes, it looked like Gibraltar was the main owner, the beneficial owner of these. Gibraltar would then take its commission of 2 to 3% and wire the proceeds back to its underlying US client. So that was the first strategy. The second one was in relation to the shares of a specific company, one called Magnum Door, where again, all the trading looked like it was for Gibraltar itself as the beneficial owner. And the tactic they used also had some relevance in terms of the reporting, right? In both of these cases, in both of these schemes, they lied on the US W8BEN forms and said that they were the UBO of the income across these numerous accounts at US brokers. But there was also a knock-on effect here, right? Because the US brokers who thought Gibraltar was their client based in the Bahamas and not the actual US individuals, right? The US brokers, for their part, received these fraudulently completed forms and didn't withhold the necessary taxes because Gibraltar, who they thought they were dealing with, was a foreign entity. And under the US treaty, it was exempt from withholding tax. So Mark, this is a pre-FATCA case. Had this case happened when FATCA was in place, how would its requirements have applied and how might it have helped to detect what Gibraltar was up to? Well, in the first instance, the first thing would be that we'd be asking them to fill out the forms. That's no different. 
but the W8BEN e-form now had additional requirements for entities to state their classifications. So why is this new requirement in terms of information that has to go on the form relevant? And how is it linked to the AML KYC we actually collect? So then we would need to determine what sort of entity, what type was involved, whether it was active or passive. That then comes back, as we said before, in terms of the additional information that would be required, mainly in respect of the UBOs. FATCA also then required a reasonableness check on the classification that was provided and then further checks on who had to be reported. As I said, for a passive, it was the beneficial owners, controlling persons, and sometimes even the senior managing official would have to be reported if these people could not be identified. That would then be compared with the AML information that was collected against the self-certification. So it would be validated. Under FATCARE, that required more than just the basic checks on the form itself and would have involved tax residence checks, KYC AML information comparison, and crucially, as well as relationship manager inquiries. And then there was an obligation that if there was any reason to doubt the answers given and the information provided, they would have to follow up on discrepancies and either obtain a reasonable explanation for these, or in some cases, they would close the account or refuse to open the account in the first place. There's another interesting case from a couple of years ago when FATCA was in place, and it involves a character with a moniker or nicknames of Stamps and Charlie Wolf. So what happened in that one, Mark? I guess. Well, by Stamps or uh, Charlie Wolf, I think you're referring to the Greg Mulholland case. And interestingly, I think this case also links to the Gibraltar case because it was a similar tax evasion scheme a little bit later and post the 2010 Hire Act that brought FATCA in. Ironically, when the Bahamas were signing up to FATCA, such that there would have been a requirement to report, the undercover FBI agent that was investigating Gibraltar appears then to have been referred to other entities, but this time in Belize, known to the Gibraltar company, such as Unicorn International and Securities Limited. And as I understand it, it appears that there are some familiar mutual clients to the Gibraltar folks and also some of the same tactics that were employed here. As Belize was not and is still not a FATCA compliant country, Unicorn emphasized again clients could quote trade with confidence because the information about the beneficial owners, shareholders, directors and officers was not even filed with the Belize government nor was it available to the public. So hence the company could assist with securities fraud money laundering, and crucially, there would be no U.S. reporting. So where to next, Mark? And then from there, we go on to a case that's probably familiar to the brokers, which is the Loyal Bank or the Beaufort Securities case. In a nutshell, this was the first successful FATCA prosecution. Basically, what happened here is that the, the bank blatantly turned a blind eye to its U.S. reporting requirements. And essentially, it ensured that there was nothing on file or on documentation that was given to others that would reveal any U.S. identity of the undercover agent. And this even went all the way up to the former CEO of Loyal Bank, who was actually extradited from Hungary to face charges and was subsequently convicted. And as a strange corollary, Loyal itself in liquidation 
are currently suing MasterCard for termination of the license when the news broke because they immediately revoked their use of the MasterCard branding, which drove the company into liquidation. Well, I think we've got time for just one more case. So what can you tell us about the 2018 case about Central States Capital Markets, LLC? This was the first U.S. prosecution of an onshore broker-dealer in the U.S., and it was related to failures in the customer identification procedures and the lack of any SARS or red flag transactions follow-up. I mean, this firm offered a range of broker-dealer asset management and public finance services. It ran a payday lending business, and it was done through the Native American tribes who were who basically had sovereign immunity and were tax-free in relation to this type of activity. I mean, these payday lending was at something like 700%, so it was really quite unsavory. Despite the anti-money laundering tools that they had, central states did not use those to properly monitor the transactions involving the accounts. The tool itself generated something like 103 alerts between December 11 and December 2015, but they never checked any of these alerts or made any attempt to customize the tool default settings. So again, after opening these brokerage accounts, the tribal corporations began transferring the funds from the accounts to Scott Tucker, who was the man behind Central, uh, Central States. And it was to his personal account, even in round dollar amounts. I mean, in a period of less than something like three months, these transfers totaled over $40 million. So you could ask, why have we chosen these cases? And I think the answer is really what we've got. And then the early days of FATCA, and you can see the direction of the travel in, po in the post-FATCA world. For example, the move from Bahamas to Belize was a jurisdictional one that was down to the introduction of FATCA in some places, but not in others. So I think what we're going to see is, given that COVID-19 and the requirement for increased tax revenues to fund government policies, there's going to be more and more of these investigations. And consequently, you need to be looking for the red flags to avoid being in the, the sight of governments. Okay, Mark, we've covered a lot of territory in this podcast. So can you just recap for us the red flags that we've identified here as part of this podcast and review of the cases we've just described? I mean, these red flags, I think, that come out of the cases that we've looked at would be, for example, where we have conflicts between what the customer is telling you and what you get from third-party agencies, for example, credit reference agencies conflicts between what the customer gives you and government sources, so companies, house, or other government agencies. You're then looking for things like movements between CRS, FATCA jurisdictions, and those yet to get involved in CRS. Classic ones would be the transactions that serve no commercial purposes. For example, what we saw in one of the cases was what they called wash trades or match trades, were just boosting demand for share prices essentially the old US pump and dump schemes. You'd get daylight lending occurring. You'd be looking for uncooperative clients where they're slow to give you the information about tax residency or tell you about changing circumstances. 
or they can't provide explanations for the, any discrepancies. So these types of red flags indicate how essential it is that you have a relationship and a good working relationship with your AML KYC teams because they get the information on a transactional basis and the AEOI teams, they may not become aware of them until the end of the year. And that's it for this EFI Limited podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the comments and some of the insights shared by Mark today. Feel free to reach out to the company at its website located at efilimited.com or you can also contact them directly through their LinkedIn page. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.